Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick shares from 1 Timothy 5, 1-16, the eighth part of the series, The Household of God. Now, here's Jim. With us introducing a new computerized system into the projection system, he sent me an email the other day asking if I had any slides that I wanted him to uh, check over just to make sure everything works. And I told him, no, this morning I'm going pre-computer age PowerPoint. Hopefully I'll have the power and you'll get the point. I think maybe I'll just stick with that for the rest of my speaking career. What a beautiful morning out, though, isn't it? I think that's been the greeting this morning is, what a beautiful morning. I heard on the radio that uh, in Windsor today, it's three degrees and raining. I feel sorry for southern Ontario. I, I, I really do. Not only is it crowded and polluted and congested down there, but they don't even have Christmas yet. And we've got that. It, 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 if you're having a prayer time this afternoon... Say a prayer for the people in southern Ontario. I'm sure they could use it. But let's, uh, let's continue on our service with, with, with just that. Let's continue on with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. We come before you as a group of people who believe not only in your existence, but we, leave, we believe in you to the extent that it's our desire to give our lives to you. And so we come before you this morning seeking to glean from your word that which you would show us, that you would show us what each and every one of us needs for this moment, for this day in our lives. So with that in mind, we continue on our prayer, our service this morning, and we look forward to all that you have in store for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue to look at Paul's letter of encouragement and advice to Timothy. We're looking at the, the first letter to Timothy. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you're looking in the Brown Pew Bibles, you'll find our reading today, our main reading, on page 1,849. But we've been looking so far in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's advice on how to deal with false teachers, instruction on worship, qualification for church leaders, warnings about those who would fall away from the teaching of Jesus Christ, as well as a, a, a word of encouragement for Timothy himself. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Paul's advice to Timothy on a very specific group of people. And we're going to be reading 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Do not rebuke older men harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... These should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. 
For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them out and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, Paul starts off in chapter 5 advising Timothy on how to treat his relationship with other people around him. And he pretty much covers the entire adult demographic age group in his advice that he gives them. And then Paul zeroes in on a particular group of people, that is widows, and he spends a fair amount of time on how they should be cared for in a benevolent manner. Now, the challenge when we read other people's mail, and that's what we're doing here, we're reading somebody else's mail, is that we don't have the intimacy that the um, author and that the recipient would have had. And because of that, we sometimes have to read between the lines. And in doing so, it sometimes requires us it sometimes requires us to try and understand the nature of the problem that we may not have had as close of an encounter as in this case Paul and Timothy had. Was there a financial burden being placed on the church in Ephesus, which Timothy was in at the time? Was there a financial problem because more widows wanted to share in the benevolence of the church than what the church could support? If this is the problem, was the problem just limited to Ephesus or was it more widespread to other churches in the areas? Or perhaps this was not a problem yet, but Paul saw it as a possibility and he wanted to address it with Timothy to nip it in the bud, so to speak. We don't know for sure, but we know it must have been enough of an issue that Paul wanted to raise it with Timothy and spend a portion of his letter addressing it with him. Now, widows are part of a group of people that God has always advocated for. And in the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God spelled out that not only for widows, but for other less fortunate people, that when the farmers harvested their crops, whether it be grain in the field, olives from the olive trees or grapes from the grapevine, that they were not to take every last piece of their harvest, but rather they were to leave some behind so that widows and those less fortunate could go afterwards and glean what was left over to provide sustenance for themselves. A form of working welfare. Now, Paul is still conveying the need to look out for the well-being of widows, but not in the way that God dictated it to in the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant. Rather, it appears to me that Paul was speaking more about a form of welfare, not in which the widows would go out into the field and glean from the harvest, but rather in which the church would provide sustenance for those who could not provide for themselves. The same way that we today might provide a, um, a food voucher or some groceries to those who we know are really going hungry. Now, in order for the church not to suffer financial hardship, Paul was reminding Timothy that, not, that only widows who are truly in need should go on this list of widows 
Widows who could care for themselves or had family members to care for themselves should be looked after by those family members. Now, there's a cultural aspect at work here in the list of requirements that Paul was giving for widows to be put on this list. And if Paul was around today, he would probably alter that list to fit our culture today. But in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, this was the culture that they were working with. What would not change, though, is the need for families to step up to the plate and to do their part and look after for widows within their own families because this is what it means to be a Christian. This section that we're looking at today in 1 Timothy is pretty straightforward. It doesn't require an in-depth theological interpretation. It's more common sense with biblical principles incorporated in it for the Christians that it was addressed to. Now, just because this is easy and it's straightforward doesn't mean that's it. I start with the closing prayer now. I still got 25 minutes left here and I'm going to fill it. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a closer look and start peeling away some of the layers of, uh, of this, this chapter. You see, if, if, if you're doing this, Paul was advocating for, if you've got your own family members, parents or, or grandparents, and you're looking after them the way that Paul instructed Timothy to instruct the church. And sometimes this is difficult. Kids know this. Parents can be difficult to look after at times. But if you are looking after your parents, your grandparents, you can be rest assured that your resources, your time, the effort that you're putting in will not go unrecognized by God. And this morning, I want to go beyond that concept. I want to peel back the layers that are within these verses. I want to look and learn for our own lives what can be a challenge? And how can we apply the principles that Paul is using here to the challenges in our own lives? Not necessarily the challenge of looking after aging parents, but rather the challenge of problem solving in general and finding solutions to those problems. How do we get from Paul's problem solving with Timothy with regard to dealing with widows to our own problem solving? Well, we do it by examining how we find solutions to our own problems. How we do that as Christians, as people who believe in God and want to follow God. We all face problems in our lives. If you've never faced a problem in your life that requires a solution, you're just not trying hard enough. And I want to start this morning as we journey down this path with a story about a man named Rich Busha. And it was taken from a book called The Unshakable Truth, and it was co-written by Josh and Sean McDowell. It's a story of a man who had a problem in his life, and he was looking for a solution. And we'll pick it up midstream with regards to his story. This is Rich Rich Boucher speaking. I'm not really sure why I wanted to go to church, because I didn't have a high regard for church people. They were a judgmental bunch. All I got from church people was condemnation and scripture verses thrown at me. My life was already going up in flames, so I didn't need more condemnation. And when your house is in flames, you don't want someone on your front lawn quoting scriptures. You want a fireman with a water hose. Yet for some reason, I felt I needed to go to church. I guess what I was hoping for was that somewhere out there, I might find a church with a hose that gushed with love and acceptance. Maybe in the back of my mind, I figured that was probably too much to ask, given my experience with church people. 
but I was going to give it a try anyway. What did I have to lose? When I walked into church, I was greeted by a lady in a pretty flowered dress. With a smile that stretched from ear to ear, she greeted me sweetly, saying, Hello, welcome to Grace Church. We chatted for a minute. She was so bubbly and happy. And happy. I figured this must be some kind of cult congregation. I thought, no one could be that happy at a regular church. It gets better. She then introduced me to her husband and said, Tom will take you to the stoners class. Stoners class? Were these people really going to get stoned in a church meeting? As it turned out, stoner was the last name of the man who ran a small uh, group. I was a long-haired, skinny, burnt-out addict, and they could see that. Yet these people accepted me for who I was without judgment or condemnation. In the past, most people had told me that my problem was drugs and alcohol. But the reality was that these things were my solution. Did you catch that? I'm going to read it again in case you missed it. In the past, most people had told me that my problem was drugs and alcohol. But the reality was these things were my solution. These church people knew that too. They saw that my problem was being alone and disconnected. I was looking for a sense of meaning and belonging. They saw that I was trying to solve things by joining a gang and getting into drugs and alcohol. But I didn't find what I was really looking for. These things were an attempt to drown out my problem, the hurt, the aloneness, my miserable existence. My solution wasn't a solution at all. For the first time in my life, I met real people who loved me for being me. I didn't even love me. And they were so doggone happy, it almost bugged me. They loved life. It had meaning to them. And I began to really crave what these people had. See, Paul was addressing a problem. The problem of what to do about widows who should not have been on the widows list. His solution incorporated both common sense and biblical principles. And I think that we can all come to the agreement that Paul's solution that he offered up to Timothy was a good one. Let's look at another example in the Bible of somebody who's looking for a solution. Let's take a look at King David. Someone who had a solution that didn't go so well. See, King David had a problem. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, she conceived and became pregnant. Now, the first problem David had was falling into the temptation of lust and having uh, uh, an extramarital affair with Bathsheba in the first place. But be that as it may, as we pick up the story here, David's immediate problem was what to do with Bathsheba's husband Uriah. At first, David recalled Uriah from the battlefront and tried to cover up whose child it was. But when that didn't work, David stepped it up a notch and he had Uriah assigned to the very front, the most dangerous place in the Israelite army. And Uriah was killed during the battle. If you read the account in 2 Samuel, things went from bad to worse for David at this point. Now, there's a parallel between David and Bathsheba and that of Rich Busha. Rich Busha didn't see drugs and alcohol as his problem. He saw them as his solution to what was going on in his life. In David's case, he saw that having Uriah purposely killed as being the solution to the problem in his life. Now, in both cases, these men came up with solutions to the problems that didn't become solutions at all, but rather they just made things worse. Things went from bad to worse in a very quick, short order period of time. Now, stories like King David and that of Rich Busha are examples of coming up with the wrong solutions to one's problem. Well, how can we find the right way to find solutions to our problems? How can we do as Paul did with Timothy to finding a solution to the problem of taking care of widows? How can we find a solution that both pleases God 
and meets the needs to the problem at hand in our lives. Let's take a, another look at an example in the Bible. This time, an example of somebody who got it right. A very serious problem was facing Noah. See, in chapter 6 of Genesis, we can read about Noah having a very serious problem. God had had enough of the wickedness of mankind, and the Bible says the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. God told Noah that he was going to wipe out mankind from the face of this earth, but because Noah was a righteous man, God said he was going to spare Noah and his family, and he told Noah to go and build an ark. Well, what was Noah's solution to the threat of survival of not only himself but his family? When I first thought about this, I thought, well, it's obvious. Noah's solution was to go and build an ark. But then as I thought about it more and more, I realized, no, that was not Noah's solution at all. Noah's solution to the problem at hand was to follow God's instruction. You see, if God had told Noah to go and do something else other than build an ark, and Noah had said, no, 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 that's okay, I'll just build a boat for myself and my family and we'll survive the flood, I don't think it would have turned out as well for Noah as it did in the end. <clears throat> you see, that's the secret to finding solutions to our problems, to follow God's instruction. Well, how do you do that? It's easy, Jim, for you to say, well, just follow God's instruction. Well, we've all been down that road. How do we find God's instruction? How do we find that solution for the problems in our life? Well, it's quite simple. I've come up with a three-step solution. It's not a 12-step solution. It just comes down to three simple steps. The first step is to read God's instruction, Bible, instruction manual, the Bible. The second step is to pray and ask God to show you his solution, his wisdom. The third step is to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. There you have it. Three simple steps to finding a solution to any problem that will come across your life. Now, it's not a solution. It's not a program. It's not a three-step process that you can complete in three minutes. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort on your part. But you need to work at it. And you need to do all three steps. You can't skip any. You can't leave any steps out. If you want to find a solution that's both honoring and pleasing to God and one that truly solves your problem. Let's take a closer look at some of these steps. Step one. In the Bible, you'll find inspiration to a solution that is God-pleasing to any problem that you have. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't just say it and expect you to go off and do it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the high priest that the author in Hebrews was talking about is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ felt the emotions that we feel. When he was upon this earth, he went through all the emotions. And you can find examples of that throughout the New Testament. It also says specifically that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that we are tempted. Yet within him there was no sin found. We have a high standard that we could look to. Now, God knows that we're not Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. We are not without sin. But we have somebody who went through the same temptations that we go through. We have somebody who is feeling, who has felt the same emotions that we feel. And because of that, Jesus Christ 
has compassion for us. Jesus Christ can feel empathy for us. And the only way you can feel empathy is for another person is to walk in their shoes first. Otherwise, you have no idea what they're going through. But Jesus Christ has done that. And we can turn to Jesus Christ. All of this is in the Bible. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Go looking for it today. In the Bible, you'll find a solution to your problem. But if you don't read the instruction manual, how are you ever going to find it? Now, just reading the Bible through will not be the solution to whatever problem you may have. Reading any, any instruction manual, whether it be to assemble a bookcase or whether it be to find a solution to your problem, is useless if you don't understand it. Ever tried to read an instruction manual that came from China that was written in Chinese? You might as well just throw it out the window and make it up as you go along. And for some of us, even with the manual you can read, you throw it out the window and make it up as you go along. But be that as it may, reading any instruction manual, you have to be able to understand it. And the depth of God's Word is inexhaustible. As simple as so much of it is, the Gospel message, as simple as that is, the depth that is in God's instruction manual is completely inexhaustible. But you need to go to God for prayer. Your second step. To ask Him to seek His wisdom. Otherwise, it's going to be your own wisdom that you're imparting in what you read. And that's a dangerous path to go on. And God will give you wisdom. In James chapter 1, verses 2-8, to eight, it reads, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should think that he will receive nothing from the Lord. He is a double-minded, and he's unstable in all that he does. Well, there you have it. Ask God for wisdom, and God will give it to you without finding fault for you asking. But as it says in James, he specifies how you have to ask. If you're going to come up to God, ask him for wisdom, ask him for a solution to your problem, James lists a prerequisite that you have to meet first. You have to ask God and you have to believe. If you don't believe God will or can give you wisdom, then he's not going to. But in order to believe that God will give you the wisdom, you have to believe the way the Bible says. You see the circular action we've got here, going on here? You've got to read God's instruction manual. You've got to ask God for wisdom. You've got to read God's instruction manual to know how to ask God for wisdom. It's a very circular thinking. And it's not just believing in God's existence, because even Satan does that. No, you've got to believe as the Bible teaches, to the extent that you're willing to trust your life to God. In fact, give your life over to Him. Let God have control of your life then you'll be able to, to complete steps three of the three-step process. And that third step of allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you. Now, in order for this third step to be possible, the Holy Spirit has to first dwell within you. And the Bible, again, tells you how all that happens. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have faith to the extent that you're willing to give your life over to Jesus Christ, make Him your Savior, then the Bible says the Holy comes and dwells 
the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Jesus Christ told his disciples when he was with them on the earth, he said, I have to leave in a little while, but I'm going to send somebody to you, the Comforter, who's going to be with you, and who's going to instruct you. That Comforter is the Holy Spirit. You have to give your life over to Christ. You have to repent or earnestly seek to do a 180 degree turn from the life that you had before, the life that was leading you away from God. Instead, you have to turn and want to have your life follow God's leading. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. God knows we are not without sin. But yet God provided a way out for us. And when you take up that offer that God has for his son, Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And that changes everything. that same Holy Spirit is available for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you let him, he'll reveal a plan for you that's far better than any plan you can ever think of yourself. Galatians chapter 5 is evidence of just that, starting at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious and it's a big list. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, evil, drunkenness, orgies and, orgies and the like. It's a long list. And I'm sure you can add to it yourself. And he goes on to say, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This can be the toughest step of them all, following the Holy Spirit, because our spirit tends to be at odds with that of the Holy Spirit many times. Our spirit is predisposed to sin, and we can probably all make a little mental notation to ourselves what our own predisposition to sin is. We may have more than one, but we all have a predisposition to sinning. And like a stubborn child who's determined to do it their own way, oftentimes we too think we know better than God how we should run our own lives. If that's you, ask yourself this question. How's it going? Have you found peace in all circumstances of your life? Have you found joy that can carry you through any trial? Have you found contentment even in the struggles of your life? Or are you tired of running in circles, chasing what the world constantly promises but can never deliver to you? If that's the case, why not try a simple three-step process to finding a long-lasting solution to your problem? Three simple steps to find solutions to any problem you might have. But I know that sometimes, even with good intentions, we still mess up. Now, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that if you do mess up like David did, that it's game over, that there's no recovery process, that you're just going to crash and burn and God wants nothing to do with you. See, Rich Bush's story doesn't end with him just going to the stoner's class. The church that accepted him without judgment 
helped to change his life. And his story goes on to say, Over time I learned who Jesus really was, what he did for me, and how he was the real solution to my messed up life. As of the time of the writing of this book, Rich Boucher became a leader within the church that he went to. And he, in fact, himself started leading a, a group of people with addictions into recovery. There's a lesson for every congregation in the world. Here's a little aside for all of us to pay attention to with the story of Rich Boucher. When someone walks through the doors of your church, our church, we need to accept them with love. To show them the love of Christ that somebody else showed you. To teach them God's word. To let God be the one who convicts and changes their lives. I can't convict anybody. I can't change somebody's life. But God can through the Holy Spirit and through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to be encouraging anybody who walks through these doors. For some people, that can take years. But I need to make sure I'm not driving somebody away from God because I have a lack of patience. Because it's not happening soon enough, I need to make sure I'm not writing Bible verses across that two-by-four and then whacking them across the head with it. doesn't matter how many Bible verses you write on a two-by-four. You whack somebody with the head, you're only going to knock them their senses loose. We need to make sure that God's Word is written on their hearts, not branded across their forehead with a two-by-four. Well, back to where we were. King David, when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, repented of his sin. Now, God accepted David's repentance. And the Bible says that God actually took David's sin away. Now, David had to live with the consequences of his sin, and the consequences were great indeed. But God went on to use David in mighty ways for his kingdom. And perhaps the greatest way that God used King David was that Jesus Christ came from the lineage of King David. In the uh, record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 1, it starts off with a record of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you go on to use this three-step plan to find solutions to your problem in your life, and I hope you do because I think it works, well, how do you know that the solution that you formulated, that you come up with, will work? How do you know that it's the one that's right and pleasing to God and is the final solution to your problem? Well, the acid test is simply asking the question, is it pleasing to God? But to answer that question honestly, you have to put aside all of your biases. You see, if you have that solution and you start justifying your own actions before God, then you've either got to say, I've come up with the wrong solution or I just don't care for God's solution. You have to be able to say to yourself that I truly am willing to follow God's solution. I'm willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And God's solution isn't always easy. It wasn't for King David. It was by no means easy. But David repented. God took away his sin. And he went on to be a very powerful ally for God in his kingdom advancement. And if you are honest with yourself and you realize the solution that you have is not the right one, well, just go back to the beginning. Just start at step one again. There's no penalty for starting back at the beginning again. But I encourage you to really think about your solutions to this life. If you've got a solution and you say, I know what you want me to do, God, but 
But go right back to step one. You've got to start at the beginning again. Today we've been looking at solutions to problems. Paul's solution for Timothy regarding support to widows. Rich Busha had a problem of loneliness and his solution was to find Jesus Christ who promises never to leave us. King David had a problem. He was trying to cover up one mistake with the other until he realized the solution to his problem was repentance. Noah knew the solution to his problem was to follow God's instruction. The solution to your problem, my problem, is right there waiting to be revealed. But you have to go looking for it. You have to read the Bible, God's instruction manual. You have to seek God's wisdom to open your eyes to understand it. Not to your wisdom, but to God's wisdom. And certainly not to the wisdom of this world. And you have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.